0: Last week you got one verse, this week you get two. That's awesome, right? We're making our way through the Bible slowly. <laughs> Good morning, City Light. My name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. And I don't know about y'all, but I am still on this really big high from last week. Like, we had over 40 people baptized right here in this room, and somehow, someway, we crammed in 1,200 people over three gatherings in this room. And so, I mean, those people were in here praising Jesus, worshiping God for all the beautiful work that he's been doing in and through this church. Man, I I just want to say Jesus is building his church. He is taking people from death and bringing them to life, and he's been doing that for 2,000 years. And And my prayer for us is that as we walk through this next year as a family, that we wouldn't lose that. That we wouldn't lose the excitement, the awe in what God is doing in and through our family here, right? That we wouldn't lose the joy that we experienced last week, that every single week would be highlighted by us seeing what God might do. And so I think in, in light of that, I think it's really great that we get to walk through the book of Ephesians that as we start our series this week we're going to walk through this book and the book of ephesians is said to be the church's masterpiece both in orthodoxy which is the doctrine of the church what we believe and then also in orthopraxy meaning the practices of those truths and, and so basically the book of ephesians if you want to know what it what what it means to believe the gospel as a Christian and also practice or should I say respond to that gospel look no further the book of Ephesians how outlines that for us so clearly and so we get to see how the church is manifest by God's grace but also like why or how the church plays such a big and powerful role in what God is going to do uh, in and through uh, redeeming all of creation to himself. So we get to see, man, the church plays a big part in what God is doing to redeeming people to himself. And I, and I say all of that because last week, some of y'all noticed that I was high-fiving like everyone and telling everybody happy birthday, right? So some of you knew people were like, what is he doing? He's kind of weird and crazy. It's okay. Uh, I was excited. But the reason why I was saying happy birthday, I was like, man, we're, we're celebrating what God has done over the last year and a half. And, and I remember some of those people came to me and was like, man, what a big day for you and your staff. And, and I looked back at him, I was like, yeah, it, it is a big day for me and our staff, but it's a big day for you, too. Because we are the church. That celebration last week was celebrating what God is doing through the church, not through the staff of the church, but all of us as the body of Christ. You see, the church isn't a place that you attend on a Sunday morning gathering, and it's definitely not an organization that you just have an affiliation with. No, the church is all of us. It's the, the people in the room. We are Jesus' church. We're his set-apart people for his plan and his purposes. The church is not a building. It's a people. And so as we walk through the book of Ephesians, it won't only teach us what God's plan is for the world, but it's also going to hopefully start to churn our hearts and change our hearts to what his will is for his church. Amen? And so here's some questions and some topics that Ephesians is going to walk us through as we're walking through this book. And one of the questions would be, who does God say that we are? It's going to answer that question. Who does God say that we are? Who are we apart from Jesus? Why do we worship God? How to pray? What to pray for? Why are we saved? What makes grace so amazing? Uh, Why is church such a big deal? How do a group of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnic backgrounds come together as a united family? Uh, And it also will answer questions like how do we fight sin? And even practically speaking, it'll answer some of the, like, what does it look like to have a gospel-centered marriage? How, how do we parent out of grace rather than law? And, and also, it's going to say, man, how do we go to our jobs and work them in such a way that it becomes worship for us rather than just a duty? Like, those are some of those questions that we're going to be able to see within the book of Ephesians. And, and I know, like, if you go ahead and open your Bible right now to the book of Ephesians, you should, because we're going to actually walk through that. Uh, but uh, there's six chapters in there. That's it. Like, it's just six chapters. it's probably four pages in your Bible. And, and I know it's short, but it is a comprehensive understanding of the gospel and the implications that it has on the church. And like any other letter, what Paul does, he starts out that letter with a greeting, and so for this morning, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at those two verses, the greeting, and I don't know about you, but when I open my Bible and I see a greeting, I usually just skip the intro and go to the next thing, right? I do that with books, too. Uh, it's kind of weird, but anyway, so, so it might sound a little like uneventful to look at these two verses, but, but my hope is, as we journey this morning, that you would see that God's word, every single verse, every single word is packed with good news. It's packed with his gospel. It's packed with his truth, and so let's look at verse one and two. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we walk through these two verses, here, here's what I want you to bear in mind: as we walk through it, it is a letter from God through Paul to saints in Jesus, containing a message that we need every day. Okay, it, it's a letter from from God through Paul to saints in Jesus. That contains a message that we need every single day. So that's what we're walking through. So so let's start out with Paul. So Paul starts out this letter and says, Hey, I am Paul an apostle. So what's an apostle? Apostle is a sent one of God. And so when you look at the New Testament, you'll see there are twelve or thirteen apostles that are sent out, and, and their primary role was to bring the New Testament scriptures to the church. And so Paul's saying, Hey, I am one of those guys. He's calling himself an apostle to say, Hey, this is, the words that are here are revealed by God, not by me. It, 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 in the early church, in really just the first century, it would have been crazy for people to hear that Paul, of all people, was a Christ follower, let alone an apostle on top of that. You see, Paul was a Pharisee. So a Pharisee, they were these hyper-religious guys that, that like just knew their Bible, Old Testament, really, really well. They memorized every single verse in the Old Testament, which is all good stuff, by the way. I'm not criticizing that. But what he would also do, though, is they would strive to earn God's favor by obeying the law as much as they possibly can, every jot and tittle, all the way through the entire law. And so th- it, this was so ingrained in them that Paul also was a persecutor of the church. He was technically, basically for all intent, a terrorist against the, the body of Christ, against Christians. In, in Acts 8, what we find is an account of Paul sitting there in approval of the murder of Stephen. Our first martyr after Christ's resurrection, Paul's sitting there essentially applauding the fact that Stephen's being stoned for being a follower of Jesus. And then you flip it and say, oh... Now, this man's a Christ follower and an apostle, a leader of the church. Man, it's the equivalent of this. It's the equivalent of modern-day Al-Qaeda having one of their leaders come to faith in Jesus and start planting churches in the Middle Middle East. That's that's who Paul is who comes to faith here. Paul's life is is just a beautiful uh, display of God's grace written out for us. And notice, Paul, that, that he says that he's an apostle by the will of God. Like that's so important for us to notice that it says, by the will of God. It's not a celebration of Paul's ego that he's trying to build up. No, it was a celebration that God had redeemed him and broke, broke him out of the chains of bondage that come from self-ego or self-promotion. And said, no, I'm promoting what God is doing here. He has called me his humble servant and apostle. And so by God's sovereign will, this man has an apostolic calling on his life. A, 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 not a boasting in self, but a boasting in God. And then he's also saying, man, God has his stamp of approval on this letter. So much so that it's not my words, but these are God's words contained in it. And so Paul knows that it's God's will. When he, he looks at his own testimony, like we had last week, people sharing their stories of how they came to faith. If he looks at his, he knows it's only God here's why he knows that in acts 9 paul's on his way to damascus and here's what it says about him it says that he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the lord that's verse 1 okay that's what's going on with him and then what happens is jesus comes forward and by himself by his own volition and calls paul out and he says to paul i am jesus whom you are persecuting i want to step aside for that just real quick Think about that. Jesus so identifies with his church that he would say, when we are persecuted, people are persecuting him. How incredible is that, right? And so what God does here for Paul, he steps into his story and says, hey, you're no longer going to be Paul, the persecutor of the church, but Paul, the proclaimer of my word, right? So he steps in, he causes him to repent and place his faith in the sovereign Lord. This, is, this has always been a part of God's plan for Paul's life, actually. Galatians 1, Paul said, from the time, from before I was born, I have been set apart for this. And so, so why does this matter for us in the room? Well, the reason why it matters is because Paul's story is our story. At one point in our lives, we all have been in a place of rebelling against God, running from God, pushing away God, and yet God would step in and change our story. You see, Paul's story reminds us that God can radically change and use anybody that he wants, including a murderer or a terrorist against Christians. And so in Christ, every one of us uh, has, has been delivered and separated from this self-promotion uh, or self-exaltation. And not only has he saved us, but he's also called us into a work of building his kingdom with him. The only explanation for any of that would be his grace. And so we have been given a position in God's family and a purposeful role to play. And so, so as we look at this letter, it was a letter written from God through Paul to saints in Jesus, right? From God through Paul to saints in Jesus. And so let's continue in the B section of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So who's Paul writing to? Well, he, he's writing to the Ephesians, right? The Ephesian saints in Ephesus. So before I, I tackle that word saints, let's, let me give you some context of this church in Ephesus. They're a wild bunch. So in Acts 18 through 21, it starts to like basically outline how this church was formed, and it started with a guy named Apollos. Now, Apollos followed the teachings of John the Baptist, which was an interesting thing because it was basically uh, the precursor to Jesus' message of the gospel. Uh, so what, what he believed in was that we all repent from our sins, turn from our sins, and place our faith in the coming king, the coming kingdom. Well, this sweet couple named Priscilla and Aquila come to Apollos and said, hey man, you got half of it right. Yes, we ought to turn from our sins and place our faith in the king, in the king but guess what? The king has arrived. In fact, the king died and rose from the grave, and so the kingdom is here. It is now, and Apollos is like, man, yes, let's do that, which spurs Paul to enter into Ephesus, which was a crazy matter in and of itself. So Paul goes in, and he starts healing people back and forth, and he's casting out demons out of people. Literally, people are taking his snot hangies, putting them on people, and they're getting healed. Like, it's a crazy work of the Holy Spirit in that church, right? And, And so what happens is the news is spreading all over the place. The gospel's being preached hard, and some guys called Jewish itinerant exorcists. Itinerant Jewish exorcists uh, caught attention to it. Now, I just want to pause for a second and acknowledge the fact that that's a weird job. Okay, it's a, it's a weird job. I'm not sure how you get into that better yet, why you would get into that. And so, like, when I look at that, I'm like, okay, churchjobs.net. Let's, let's see how they explain. Seeking itinerant Jewish exorcists must have experience in being creeped out must not have any friends or any ties to normal people. And, oh, it doesn't pay a whole lot either, okay? So that's what these guys are. And it, the Bible says it. So any, anyway, so these the Jewish exorcists uh, wanted to try and do what Paul was doing. They wanted to, to basically cast out demons. And so I want to show you what happens when they try that. Acts 19, verse 13. It's, uh, these men are saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So there's seven men there. But the evil spirit answered them Get this, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded naked and wounded and this became known to all the residents of ephesus both jews and greeks and fear fell upon all and the name of the lord jesus was exalted okay that's crazy right so if you walk into a fight and you walk out of it naked and wounded you lost that fight it's over the battles won they won you can just put your tail between your legs and go and then it says that every homie in ephesians told all of their friends in in the land right like so it's kind of embarrassing they probably should find a new location it's in the Bible. Anyway, we'll keep going. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. The value of 50,000 pieces of silver now is $875,000 worth. Okay? So, so the word of the, God, of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So I, I share that not only because it's kind of funny of what happened, But I also share it because of what happened with the people there at the end of the passage. These people came forward with the things that they sought to be precious to them and divulged them. They, They burned what was precious to them because they found something more precious. These were normal people of their day Seeing the good news of Jesus Christ dying on the, for their sins and raising from the grave and seeing how God is transforming and shaping other people so much so that they said, man, the things that I have, I'm going to divulge because this is far better. They trashed their precious possessions for a greater one. Jesus was changing people's lives in that land so much so that some of the people who would sell the things that people worship that weren't God, the, the idolatry, idolater makers basically, They were losing money. Like people weren't buying their stuff anymore, and so they started this huge riot there. So this is the equivalent of going into Vegas, Jesus doing a massive work there, and all of a sudden prostitution just plummets. And people are losing money, and so they're rioting over that because God changes lives. God changes people, and when he changes people, he changes a city. Last week we saw that, right? We saw God changing and transforming people And so if you know Jesus, and he he does the work of changing and transforming people, how has that been in your life? How has he changed your life? How is he currently changing and impacting your life right now? Is he changing your relationships? Is he changing the way you spend your time, your money, how you love other people? Now, th- th- I'm asking this question not because it's about a bunch of works or becoming a better person. The reason why I'm asking that is because if we've received the grace that we're, that we're talking about right here, if we've encountered the Lord Jesus, we should become more like him. That should be a byproduct of experiencing Jesus. You see, the Ephesian church were ordinary people who were struck by an extraordinary God. So th- that's good news, right? Right? Like, that's good news that the gospel of the New Testament is still doing the same thing 2,000 years ago. People struck by the good news of the gospel, divulging their practices and confessing their desperate need for Jesus. That's what's happening right now. This is our story that is written, that we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ paying for our sins, and that we would, at, prior to this, say, man, we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior right? Desperate need of forgiveness, and now in our new identity, we're sinners forgiven by a holy God and become children of that God. And we no longer do some of the things that we used to. But here's the concerning thing about all of that, is that as we continue to walk with Jesus, we keep on sinning. And and, and as we keep on sinning, there's things that we do that doesn't necessarily line up with what we say we believe. So then what that says is that we would self-identify as just a better sinner than we were before. Just a better sinner than we were before, right? We would say that we are a sinner that sins less than we did. And I believe this leads to all kinds of insecurities in our hearts, and this identification frequently means that we, it leads to our fear and doubt, and honestly, just not the victory that's promised. In Ephesians 1.1, Paul calls the Ephesian church saints. He calls them saints. That's the label he gives these magicians, so to speak, right? And in the Old Testament, when you look at that same term, it was used specifically for the nation of Israel, who was God's set-apart people victorious. It was used specifically in the manner toward his priests, his set-apart men to lead his people, and then it was also used for angels as well. And so this honor that he's bestowing on these Ephesian people, man, it was a privilege to hear that they were called saints in the sight of God. And it would have been mind-blowing for a Jewish person with a Jewish background at that time for you to call Gentile Ephesians saints. And for some of us in the room, when we hear the word saint, we think of super-Christian, right? Right? Like, we think of these people who have done extraordinary things in the name of God, and and when they die, someone gave them the stamp of approval and said, that's a saint. But the problem with that is these these ex-magic practicers in Ephesus are called saints, not as dead people, but people who have been made truly alive. That's what's going on here. Saints, according to our Bible, doesn't mean dead super-Christians. Let me ask you a question. In your Bible, in the New Testament, How often are Christians referred to as sinners? Just a guess. Three times. Maybe four. In all of the New Testament, Christians are referred to sinners three, maybe four times. How about saints? 61 times we are called saints as followers of Jesus. So to be a saint is to be set apart by God without any merit from a human. A Christian is a saint. A saint is a Christian, and, it, and that happens not based on what you do, but based on God pursuing you by his spirit and drawing you near to himself. Every Christian is a saint, and every saint is a Christian. Now, let me pause you right there. How many of us in the room have ever thought of ourselves as a saint? Right? nobody nobody thinks that about themselves but scripture declares it about us even though we fall short and falter Jesus righteousness is sufficient enough that we get the label of saint, set apart by God for his holy purpose and as saints we're separate from the world we don't belong here we're a part of a new world so don't get comfortable Like, to identify as a Christian means that we're not a part of this world. To identify as a saint means that we're not a part of this world. It's a word that doesn't describe external behavior or actions, but describes what has taken place internally in our hearts. I think we're far too comfortable saying that we're sinners and not comfortable enough saying that we're saints. And it allows us to stay stagnant in our sin and just be okay with playing with it which means that we're missing out on the rich blessings that come from Jesus and what he offers us as being his called-out children. Now, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to call, it, call each other sinners, okay? It's not a bad thing to, to identify as a sinner because we still sin. But, but what I am saying is that it's not always helpful to do so. And it's no longer what our identity is wrapped up in. It's, it's not what shapes our identity, You see, the sinner you were died with Christ, but the saint that you are lives in Christ. That's who you are. The whole book of Ephesians is about the rich blessings of Jesus that he's lavishing upon us, and and so just know this, that you're richer than you think you are. And then Paul also tags this word on the end of that, saying faithful. And so when you see that word in verse 1, It says faithful, those who are faithful. What it's saying is that it's not based on their merit, it's not based on what they do, but they're actively believing in the Lord Jesus by faith. That's what makes them saintly. So John Calvin says it this way No man is a saint, or sorry, no man is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no man is a saint. Who is not a believer. So he's saying, either you are a saint or you ain't, okay? So in Christ Jesus, we are personally and intimately joined to him. We are identified with him. We're part of his body. We are his church. We are his people, his family. And as God has set us apart as saints, we are given the message of grace and peace. The message of grace that brings about peace. It's not by man, it's not by seven how to's, it's not by becoming a better person, but it's grace and peace. From God. And so in verse two, in our next section there, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember, we're talking about this letter that is sent from God through Paul to Saints in Jesus that, that holds, that contains the message that we need every day. And that message is Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this this greeting is the poetry of our redemption in Christ. It's beautiful, it's, it's gorgeous, it's magnificent for us. Paul is combining actually the greetings of the western world and the eastern world of his time. You see that grace there uh, was, was used in the western world as a greeting, but the peace, the shalom, was used by the eastern world, the, the, the Israelites specifically. And so what he did, he said, you know what, I'm going to take both of these worlds and I'm going to bring them crashing together to make a new world. Grace and peace to you. It's a new, new Christian world, so to speak, a new Christian greeting, grace and peace. And, and this, isn't this how the gospel works, though? Right? Like, we first are given grace, and then as grace by God's Holy Spirit starts to fill our lives, well, guess what happens? Peace comes. Wholeness comes. Shalom comes. Reconciliation comes. Because of God's grace, we have not only peace in this life, but peace with him as well. There's, there's no other way to get it. It's only by his grace that we might receive peace. You see, we spend so much of our life trying to fix things or fix ourselves or fix our circumstances and change things and mold things and modify our behavior to clean ourselves up. And, and so just like the Ephesians, we need this message. We need this message that God has stepped in and rescued us from ourselves and that we can divulge our practices and confess that we desperately need Jesus. And what he gives to us is, is this grace that accomplishes peace. So he's not only redeeming us, but there's this, this promise of peace on earth as well. There's this promise that not only he's going to save sinners and allow them to have life, but he's also going to redeem the entire cosmos, the entire universe to himself, and we get to be a part of that. See, the, the initial greeting here bears the weight of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. The gospel we have been given has the power to save us and sustain us. And the way it does that is by reminding us of who we are. We are saints in Christ. We are set apart by God. In this letter by itself, it calls Christian saints nine times. We are identified in Christ as saints. And this is beautiful. It allows us to see how beautiful it is to receive this kind of grace. And that ultimately leads to peace through God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember who Paul is talking to here. Because he said, grace to you and peace through God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians. He's talking to the Ephesian church. So it's not people who, who we would consider as far off from God. They really need grace. No, he's talking to us. He's saying we need this message of grace and peace. The message of grace and peace has no equal on the planet. It is. It is by itself stands alone. It is the greatest message known to man, and it enables for the last several centuries. It enabled people whose lives or circumstances are crushing them to still proclaim with their mouths and with their heart, grace and peace. So I want to share a story that some of you might have heard. Is by a name. It's a man named um, H.P. Spafford. He was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago uh, in the 1800s. And he had a wife, and he had five kids. Uh, in 1871, his, his, his son died of pneumonia, so he had four daughters left. And then they also lost their business uh, in the Chicago fires. And on November 21st, my birthday, uh, 1873, um, I wasn't born then. Uh, but anyway, uh, his, his wife and daughters went on an ocean liner. And they were sailing from the U.S., to Europe with 313 fellow passengers, and, and among those passengers were those people was his family. He wasn't there, he was back in the U.S. still. He had some business things to take care of. And, and as they were sailing along, another ship collided with them, and in twelve minutes, two hundred and twenty-six of those passengers sunk to the bottom of the ocean, including his four daughters. His wife survived. She ended up uh, being on a piece of a wreckage, and and someone, uh, a sailor came and and rescued her, and she sent a message to to Mr. Stafford. Saved alone, what shall I do? And and Mr. Stafford, as any good husband would, booked his first uh, ship out there to go to his wife, but as his kids, his now kids that he had later on account, as they're sailing across the ocean they're going across the grave of his four daughters that's where he writes a special song that we as the church have sung for well since then it's a great hymn and here's what it says when peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like seas billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul that's our message That's the message of the gospel. That's what it brings about, grace and peace. Even when everything in your life is damaged or broken and you can't see any conceivable way out, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so if you're a person who hasn't experienced that grace of Jesus, if you haven't received the message that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave, man, I want to challenge you and say that he's got you in the room for that message. He's got you in the room to hear he wants to bring about grace and peace and all you have to do is place your faith in Jesus. Say, I trust that Jesus did in fact die for my sins and he did in fact raise from the grace so that I can have not only new life but a relationship with him. Would you receive that? Would you receive the new hope of a new world? Grace and peace. See, like this is the message that we get to bring to other people. This this is a powerful message that we get to bring to people, that they can have grace and peace with God and others. You see, a year and a half ago, a group of us sat in the living room, some of them sitting right here, sat in the living room and was praying, man, God, would you plant a church here that would be centered around you, that would make it our ambition, our our mission to glorify God by multiplying Jesus-centered disciples in churches? And last week he said, yeah, I am. Right, In just less than a year, we've seen over a, almost 100 people be baptized in this room alone. 100 people that Jesus said, grace and peace to you. He is, he's multiplying disciples. He's been doing it since Paul. You see, Paul in Acts 13, too, was going to a church in Antioch, and Antioch would send him out to multiply disciples in churches, and then he'd come back, and they'd encourage him, and he'd go back out and plant more disciples and more churches, And so from what we can see in history with the church in Ephesus, they became a hub of multiplying disciples and churches. City Light, this is what our heart's desire is as well. Like, we're going to continue that, and we're committed to it, that we will continue to multiply disciples and churches. And I just want to say, man, 2018 is going to be a great year for us because Jesus isn't done yet. He's got more to do with us. Church is not just a Sunday morning thing. And, and w- the way disciples are made and churches are multiplied isn't by the church staff or pastors going out and doing it, but it's all of us. If you were here last week and you heard those people's stories, you know that they're ordinary people that were approached by other ordinary people that share the good news with those people that, man, you can have grace and peace with God. That was the message that we heard. Ordinary folks. Ephesians is about the body of Christ and Jesus is the head of that church and we desperately need Jesus to be with us and in us and through us and working out this stuff that he's, talking, that, that he's doing here. He's planting churches. He's, he's making disciples. And so I believe that as we walk through this bu- bu- book in Ephesians, this study through this, that it's going to deeply shape our family. It's going to deeply shape our family so much so that we're going to reach other parts of our city and, and, Lord willing, other parts of our state this year. And so we're going we're gonna to boldly proclaim Christ. We're going to be his body. We are God's saints stepping out in faith. And, and, and my prayer is that we would see him do things that we never would have imagined. Because we have this beautiful and most powerful message of grace and peace. Amen.